Hi, my name is Hero Bean Stevenson, and you're listening to the All of Us podcast, where we explore and embrace mental health through the simple act of honest conversation. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that in sharing my personal experiences and insights, I do not claim to be an authority or expert on any of the issues that might come up in the discussion you're about to hear. These conversations include in-depth discussion around various mental health-related topics, the details of which may be triggering to some. So please take care while listening. Finally, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we begin, I'd also like to take a moment to thank and talk about BetterHelp, our first sponsor for the podcast. To be honest, I can't remember the first time that I went to therapy. What I do know is that since I was a little girl, it has been a consistent presence in my life, something that through my worst and best moments, I've been able to count on to provide me with support, guidance, and the feeling of being heard and understood. It's been an absolutely invaluable resource for me, and one that I believe everyone deserves access to, which is why I'm so excited to be partnering with BetterHelp as the very first official sponsor of this podcast. BetterHelp is an online resource that makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so that anyone struggling with facing life's many obstacles or anyone who simply needs a space to be heard can get the support that they deserve anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board-licensed professional counselors so that you can use BetterHelp with the comfort of knowing that your mental health is in highly vetted and trustworthy hands. Visit www.betterhelp.com slash allofus to receive 10% off your first month of counseling. Today on the podcast, I am joined by a very special person, Will Sue. Will is a psychiatrist who grew up in California and currently lives and practices here in Los Angeles. After attending medical school at UCLA, Will got his doctoral degree at the University of Oxford before joining the faculty at Harvard Medical School and completing residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital and McLean Hospital, the nation's top freestanding psychiatric hospital, where he worked for two years. Since then, Will has honed his private practice, integrating Western medicine and Eastern philosophies. During his residency in Boston, Will became interested in how psychedelics can enhance psychotherapy and soon after completed training by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, to be a therapist in clinical trials for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Will provides MDMA therapy within clinical trials, as well as integration therapy for people who have had psychedelic experiences in the past. I first discovered Will and his work watching the ever-popular Goop Lab series on Netflix, and immediately wanted to have him on the podcast to discuss all things psychedelics and therapy and journeying and ayahuasca and mushrooms and MDMA and all of that. But as you'll find listening to this episode and what so naturally reflects the ethos and spirit of this podcast, Will and I ended up connecting on a deep level across so many different subjects, which is why this is a longer episode and just part one of what turned into a four-hour conversation. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today 
and wherever it leads, and we'll tune back in for part two next Monday. All right, here is my conversation with Will Sioux. Thank you. you. I'm doing I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for for joining me. It's honestly um it's such an honor to be having this time with you. It's amazing. Not a problem. You're here in in LA, right? Yeah, yeah. This is my office here. I'm in Westwood, just just near UCLA. Oh, I'm right above West. I'm in the hills right above Westwood. That's my <laughs> it's my area. Um so yeah, we're not we're not that far away. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to, I have so many things that I would love to talk to you about um, in the time that we have. I, as you know, when I reached out to you, I think told you a bit about sort of how I came to find your work, which was through the very popular Goop Lab series. Uh, And you were in the episode on on psychedelics when they have their wonderful trip to Jamaica and, and have so many sort of revelatory moments. Um, and so, yeah, after kind of learning about your work and after learning about maps, I really wanted to speak with you about um, sort of psychedelic psychotherapy, as you, I think, put it. But then as I read more about your philosophy and your work, I just found so much resonance with um, with your whole approach. And especially in as I've sort of started my sort of path down um, the mental health and psychotherapy career um career path i guess i'm still very very recently going down and i'm a student still but um my sort of approach the entire time has been driven by this desire to sort of meld um sort of western medicine with eastern philosophy which is very much what you talk about doing in your work and so um yeah i would love to just start by getting into asking you how you sort you became interested in in healing and how you sort of initially knew that that was what you were meant to do and then also what led you to kind of want to blend those two approaches together it's interesting hearing your question because in in some ways it it to actually get from your first question to and then the second one it actually kind of spans yeah probably the age of 16 17 to to 32 so, because it's wow. a they're sort of a little they're a little different um so why did i choose to go into what you're saying is the a healing uh sort of careers that was very different than how i feel now um so i my, my parents are immigrants they immigrated from nicaragua to to the u.s just after uh, there was a communist war there in the 70s and there was a big earthquake so um, the reason I picked medicine in general, which obviously is a healing field, is because they, you know, I was a child of first generation immigrants. I was the first in my family to go to college. And so to me, like, it was how do I stabilize the family financially? So I was like, do I become a doctor, a lawyer, or a, a business person? So I, I literally was like, the one that seems the most altruistic out of the three is the one I picked. So, um, <laughs> But that was, you know, whatever, at 17 in high school. Um, but at that time, I had no no desire, no thought to go into mental health at all. I wanted to become, I didn't know what kind of a doctor at that point, actually. I think I wanted to be like a, a general practitioner. Right. So, so it's not a very romantic sort of dreamy um, way of thinking of your career. Yeah, I mean, well, well, it used to be, though, right? I mean, I did want to, you know, 
serve serve the community and go back and be a primary care doctor and work in a free clinic and that sort of thing. It's just the dream changed, I guess. So, um, but yeah, just, but sparing you the details. So I ended up, or obviously you can ask me about details if you want to, um, but eventually, you know, I went to medical school um, and that was like one time it was one, one of two very challenging times. In particular, I was around 27. I don't know if you're into astrology at all, but it was around my, I'm into like, it. I'm into it. My, my Saturn returns, so, which I think back now in retrospect, which was like my father was diagnosed with leukemia. I was in the middle of my PhD at that time at, in England. So I had done an MD PhD. So I did two years of med school, was in my PhD years. My dad got really sick. And at that time, I still wanted... I wanted to become a surgeon at that point. I had dropped the dream of becoming a primary care doctor. Hmm. And that was really, I don't know, like a time that got me really self-reflective. Um, and it was very challenging too. I mean, it was, it was probably the first time I was like seriously suicidal and um, just made me contemplate a lot about just life and, and, what mattered, but it just started. I, I would say in terms of actually thinking, I figured that out was probably now in the last few years, um, but, but at least thinking about what's the point of, of anything um, was, was really something that came up big at that time. You me. said you were, you were 27 at the time? About 27, 28, I think okay. was when that was happening. And then um, he eventually died not too long after. So I think in my third year of med school is when he passed and it was interesting because my second to last rotation of medical school and third year of med school, um, sorry, second to last rotation of the third year of medical school are like the required rotation. So you have to do kind of all the general rotation. Mm -hmm. Second to last was psychiatry and I had no, no interest in it. I had sort of built all of my resume to become an eye surgeon. Okay. And it was interesting. Like it was two weeks into the rotation. I was just like blown away because like, I don't know. I had this like, fellow I was working with, the supervising doctor who was super into psych, uh, psychology and psychoanalysis, which is now looking back is actually rare to have had someone like that be a teacher for me. But he, we were getting in all into like the, you know, the unconscious and, and, you know, defenses and, and why the kids were acting the way they were and because their parents did this and that. And I found it so fascinating. Um, and I'd never really thought about that stuff, you know, before that, that age. I was probably closer to 30 then. And it was, it was pretty mind-boggling because I was, I mean, again, you like work really, really hard in medical school to like prep your resume for a specific specialty. And so after like seven years of prepping everything to become an eye surgeon, all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, like I really like this. And you know, specialty and especially surgeries have become so subspecialized these days. There's like, I think seven different subspecialties, at least of eye surgery, meaning like most eye surgeons do like two surgeries really the rest of their life. And I was right. like, I might make a bunch of money, which was like, again, part of my initial goal, but I was like, I'm going to get really bored. I'm all, I'll be like a highly paid technician Yeah. where there seemed to be this like endless pot of fascination in psychology um, and, and psychotherapy. And so within a couple of weeks later, I had actually decided to, to switch over, which was a huge, huge deal for me. Can I ask, um, not to interrupt, but something about that transition? Yeah. You were saying that when you got, during that time, it was the first time that you were like pretty seriously suicidal. Mm -hmm. That 
all of a sudden, because I'm someone where my big sort of mental health earthquakes in my life have happened when um, I'm a pretty plan-oriented person with school and just all of my young life. I've been very much, I find a lot of comfort in a plan. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it comes from a lot of different things, but I'm safe when I can look into my little fake crystal ball and see my little plan that I've mapped out, that makes me feel really safe. And when all of a sudden the plan falls to pieces, which it has a couple times in a pretty big way, that completely rocks my world and has been the source of major um, sort of downward spiraling. How did it affect you when all of a sudden you were in this kind of dark place in terms of your own emotional state. And then on top of that, your whole sort of plan and what you've been working so hard for shifts in a big way. Was that a positive thing or was that something that kind of um, caused some some further, um, yeah. I guess, like instability? I mean, I would say a little bit of both. And I would say at the time, more instability. You know, I think I have not, at that time of my life also, I should mention, I would have considered myself atheist. Um, okay. We may get into my religious background, but I grew up Jehovah's Witness. And so at the age of 15, I left the church just because it was just so restrictive. And then when I got into science, it was all about biology and evolution. And so I did not believe in, you know, anything in what people call God, spirit, source, whatever these days. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely would not have predicted, yeah, sitting in, talking about the things I talk to my patients about these days. Yeah. So, um, I guess I mentioned that because at the time, even though I had my world rocked, you know, and, I, and now I've learned to believe that anytime there's like a massive shakeup, it's an opportunity, you know, and I, I don't think, you know, it's just that there's a shakeup and everyone goes more into alignment with what they want or what their soul wants or what their calling is. It's an opportunity, right? And I think, um, I think one thing I have gotten really good at since then, especially, was following my heart or my intuition. Um, and so, meaning it was really, really difficult to not to sort of give up all the work I had done to become an eye surgeon. Like it was, you know, it, it's one of the most competitive fields out there. I had worked for super hard. I mean, they make good money. And again, and that this was back when that mattered to me more, right? Because again, I, I was. My family's still poor, but um, that, that, so, so going from a field like that to one that at that time, like psychiatry was probably one of the least um, respected, maybe still is, but like, you know, least desired residencies. Like mm-hmm. I, um, it was a big, it was giving up this like dr- this dream that I had presented or a plan, right? Like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, short-term or long-term planning that you like to do, but maybe a little of both, but there was this plan in my mind of, of what, I wanted, right? And so it was a shakeup of that. Mm. At the same time, there was a part of me that knew that it was the right decision, you know? And I think, um, yeah, so it was, it was a bit of a mixture of both. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So then after that, how did you kind of continue on that route? It's interesting too, when, when you say um, with like taking the difficult, the kind of like earthquakes, as I just call it, like um, as learning opportunities. I think that's something that in the last two months where I've been dealing with this kind of another big one, um, I have been leaning really deeply into accepting. I think it's a really scary thing to accept 
the realities of what are going on of what are going on in your life i think especially for somebody like me who is a really big thinker and i i am very dreamy and existential and i think of like i do believe in astrology and the universe and all of these things and it it can get very easy to sort of overthink everything as a part of this like grand plan and all of that but then when it all comes down to it it's like we're living today events happen and that's they happen and it's very real and you have to keep existing in the real world and there is no sort of big giant master plan that's going to catch you and everything's going to be fine there are a series of choices that you're posed with and you need to be fully present so that you can assess yourself and where you are in your surroundings to make the choice that's most authentic to yourself and that's where you keep going so that's definitely something that i've been really leaning into in terms of taking the difficult moments as as big sort of learning opportunities and um, opportunities to choose a direction that is most authentic to you. <clears throat> yeah, um, and you may, you may learn very quickly as my patients, <laughs> I often tell them that I, I, I very much listen to words very carefully because I think they're the in on sort of, you know, they're one of the, 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 the tools that we can use to sort of unravel what we really want, right? So I, what caught my ear is that you said it can be very, or that it is very difficult to, um, I think you were sort of saying that adjusting to these earthquakes. Um, and I would actually say, that I, that's not the adjective I would use. I would propose at least saying it's painful too, or yes. it can feel painful because difficulty comes with how much we grasp, right? How much we, we don't want to give up the old dream. Right, and that, that's where there's usually a pain. And you know, that goes more into the, the Eastern philosophy stuff, which I've learned more recently, right? Which is this, this, this image we have of ourselves. So I would actually say it's not, it's not difficult, it's painful, right? But, yeah, but you're, the, more totally... we, the more we move into it, it actually you know, becomes more and more, more simple. Um, mm -hmm. and, or we don't feel them as earthquakes even. We just, or we can even, you know, it's one level to say, ah, it's not even not painful. It's actually fascinating. It's interesting. Like it's, um, look how complex the world is. Like, 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 look how interesting it's getting, you know? So that, that's, I think, you know, when I think of some of my teachers and who, who some who would consider themselves spiritual, some not, you know, that, but that's what, you know, some of the gurus or people will refer to gurus that they say, right? We're just kind of just trying to be present all the time and trying to drop the expectations and assumptions, right? Um, yeah, which th that brings up a quote that, uh, that I really like that's, that's powerful to me, which is, um, actually, no, it's, it's not such an important quote, right? Um, but it's related to expectations and assumptions, right? Because that's essentially what, what causes us pain is, is what we are, we are wanting. Yeah, completely. That's an amazing, um, that's an amazing observation. I'm somebody that too really values language and I, I love to write and I love just the way that people communicate and express themselves is is something that I hold very dearly. And it's as somebody that is such a feeler and like such an emotional person, it is a very, I don't know if it's revealing or interesting that I would choose the word difficult instead of so deeply painful because it has been such a deeply painful and mournful and surprising time for, for me. And I think I wonder if the use of a word like difficult, um, which is much more sort of clinical and and cut and dry and easy and simple, I wonder if that's um, like a coping thing almost. 
No, no, I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I just I wanted to, yeah, for this, <laughs> again, if it was of interest to you or I don't know if you, if you, it's okay for you to talk about yourself during your podcast. I talk I, about I, myself I, all the time, all no, the time. No, I, I, I wouldn't judge it. I, all I would say is, again, this, this is what I do. Like, this is what I listen for, like, you know, and why I feel like I'm really good at the, the work that I do, because people in a way are presenting there, you know, I, I believe that there's a part of us that really wants to evolve towards true alignment with our soul to our calling, etc. And so it's like, these are like hints from the soul in a way is the way I think of them when I work with myself or with people. So I don't know, just calling it difficult. I mean, not that you're judging yourself, but it's just, to me, it's just saying it's an active piece that you're working through. That's all, that's all I mean. Absolutely. Very much. In in the like, oh yeah, no big deal. You, you won't think of it as back, you know, in a year from now is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I'm, it's very much different. Yeah. It's, I'm in the thick of, of the, of the stuff. It's very much a, a transitional learning, learning time for me. Um, you know, so then, actually, I was thinking, I do want to share that, that quote with you just cause they, again, it sounds like you are very much someone who, who loves words. So um, the quote I had been thinking about was uh, unspoken expectations are premeditated resentments. Oh yes. I've, <laughs> so my my mom is um she's in the in the, in she's sober she's in AA, and so I kind of have grown up around like the there's this sort of canon of like AA sayings, and okay. one of them is expectations are resentments waiting to happen. So it's kind of like a a simpler version of a less yeah, beautiful well, well, version. Of what that, you just that, said. Those quotes, what they symbolize is the interpersonal expectation and how that can create difficulty and pain. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, what we're, the other thing we're talking about is what is our expectation of or assumption about life you yeah. know, or, or between us and the creator, if one believes in a creator, which is something I've been pondering a lot in the last year, because looking back to my father's death is what I realized in the last year. I didn't realize this back then is that the, one of the reasons that was so painful is because I had a story in my head. I, I had said to myself, he, you know, again, he's, he's proud of me. He's going to see me graduate. I'm going to mm -hmm. be the first. He always told me how his father wanted him to be a doctor. I always also had this, we, we didn't speak very often. We didn't get along very well. He was always so harsh on me. I always also had the expectation and assumption in my head that I was going to have the time to rebuild our relationship and that we would become close again. And, and that's where with this diagnosis of cancer, now looking back, that's what was really rocking to me, even though I didn't really understand at the time why, right? But, but I thought, and so I don't know, recently I was talking to a few people, including my own therapist about this, but I was like, it was almost like going into my last ayahuasca retreat. That's what it was last September. I was like, this is what I was trying to process was like, this is like between me and the creator, which was really scary to go into a psychedelic experience being like, my intention is to figure out why I feel, you know, you know, can I trust the creator basically? Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, he like, in my young, young man's mind took my father away and mm. this wasn't fair. And you know, my dad in the Jehovah's Witness system of belief, you had thought that. No, 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 no. By then, now looking back, no, it was, I hadn't, right? Because at that time, I still would have considered myself atheist. But meaning, there was this sense of like unfairness of. But but who? If if my dad died early and didn't get to live out his dreams, and I didn't get out to live right. mine, him, who 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 would I be mad at? Right? It Got would it. have to be some form of a creator, right? Like like, un, who 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 says that's unfair, right? So that was really a big. Anyway, that, that's why um, I know we may perhaps got a little bit off track, but you know, to me, that's the, as I've dropped more of stuff like that, it's been easier to drop the sort of what appears to be smaller, you know, planning and expectation that comes day to day, month to month. Cause it's like, oh, okay. Like 
I've worked around this thing around my father's death. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the thing too, is that as much as staying present is very important, it's also, I think that people today, when it comes to like the right mental state of being for optimal living, people are so kind of focused on being in the present that there's this kind of like stigma or like barrier up when it comes to like even like looking into the past and like honoring memories from the past or honoring past relationships or versions of yourself you're almost sort of not allowed to do that and then in terms of dreaming and planning for the future it's like you can do it to a certain point but then there's a certain point where you have to stop because it becomes then sort of a recipe for disaster or expectation so yeah it's interesting to kind of have that be like existing in the present and being aware of yourself and your surroundings and your state of being in this moment um, while still sort of allowing yourself the freedom to move around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in, in what you're describing in terms of like the focus on what is being sold right now as, as present, right? Because right. when I think of like the, you know, who the, the, the teachers I really, really honor. Yeah, I have two main teachers um, that I learned from and then there's like a, author that uh, this old old Indian guru who passed some time ago that, that I really has become a beautiful teacher through his writing right like none of the those gurus would be like or again those teachers of mine are like you know selling the type of presence that current well the wellness world right the wellness world has become industry now where it's like the oh like sit completely still and just watch the breath on your nose and nothing mm-hmm. can bother you let everything go and that's that's not the kind of presence that that was really meant by by you know, the, the roots of the Eastern philosophies, you know, it's like, it's like kind of like, I think wellness and spirituality has become a, a massive industry now, right? Like, I, I even compare it sometimes to, to Christianity, right? Like, like there's a lot of judgment of Christianity by, by spirituality, but spirituality's, yeah, it created its own, yeah, sort of a parallel. Um, yeah. How would you describe the present that you, how would you define presence? I mean, to me, it's about, you know, it's like, it's a difficult, one of the more difficult questions I've been asked. I usually don't get, <laughs> so good, good one. <laughs> um, I mean, God, I mean, it depends how, how deep down the rabbit hole you want to go. I don't, I don't know how I'm much. Go as deep, go. as deep as you want. We're, we're here for all of it. So, I mean, I think it, you know, I don't know if you you have read or are into Sri, uh, what's his name? Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. So he wrote this book called I Am That. Um, okay. Which is not necessarily one that I recommend most people go out and buy because it's, I got it like two or three years ago at the request of a student of, another student of one of my teachers. And like, I think I read like a chapter in it. I'm like, I don't get this. What is this? I put it down. Um, I couldn't connect to it. And I just like picked it back up recently. It's just, and it's like the most mind blowing thing I've ever read. But, uh, you know, it's, it depends. Like, so he, you know, he talks about something like, God, I'm just like really trying to be like, how, how deep down the rabbit hole do we go? Um, actually look, let's make it more useful for people. I think to (laughs) me, it's about like, you know, what we would call ego, right? Or I don't know if you believe in like something like reincarnation, right? That, that, that we have something, perhaps what some people call the soul that will, that is going through some evolutionary process here on 
as a human on earth, right? And has been here before and will go there. To me, I believe in something like that. Um, I don't think that my soul has anything to do with will and, um, and my, my mother, my father. I think the part of us that is like born here, that's in this body, your body, that will die. Everything to do with that set of things, of, of personality, this, again, the body lives and dies, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's something that can, is continuous that, that goes before and after. And so for me, it's, the, it's almost like if we can maintain the awareness of the soul, almost as, as one image of it, and sort of like watch ourselves in these bodies from this perspective of the soul, to me, that is like presence because that is where I'm sort of just like the body and the personality is kind of like the vehicle. And if I'm aware that, you know, I as the driver of the vehicle, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to expect that I'm going to get in some big accident sometimes. And at some point I'll get into a fatal accident and it'll be destroyed. But I'm just going to be, someone's going to hand me another vehicle and I'm just going to jump in it and continue the ride. Right. Like, yeah. I feel like it's the vehicle that, that, is scared of dying. It's the vehicle that wants to get a certain distance in their journey or wants to get to a certain location. So to me, presence is sort of being able to maintain as much as possible this perspective of something bigger. Um, and that every moment is sort of an opportunity to get closer to that, that, that sort of the, the, the goal of the soul's journey, I suppose. And so to me, you know, that's not to be done just in silence and meditation, right? To me, that's every interaction that I have, including here with you. You know, when you when you thanked me just at the beginning, but right in the couple of emails that you sent me, you were like, oh my God, thank you so much for making time for you, this and this. I remember thinking to me, feeling it at that time, not just thinking it. I'm like, I want a part of me wanted to say you, you really don't need to thank me that much. Like, like to me, it's no different for me truly to be speaking to you than to be being filmed to be on Netflix. Like it, it doesn't really matter to me. I don't think one is more important than the other, you know? To, and to me, that's a form of what I'm saying is, is being present just with whatever is coming up for me at that moment, you know? And because to me to say, oh, like, you know, oh, that, that's, oh, who's this person? You know, how, how many listeners do they have? Oh, I'm not gonna, like, there's so much ego involved if I, if I say something like that or I let myself speak like that, you know? And, um, a quick tangent on that, like uh, Rick Doblin, who's a name that's probably familiar to you, he mm -hmm. started MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. He's like the main person that has, is the reason why psychedelics got to where it is now. So he's been thankfully a friend um, and a dear mentor for some time. And I remember sometime after the Netflix show came out, there was a lot of ego coming out of me. And I was getting busy. I got probably a few thousand emails right after the show came out. And I call him up and I'm like, Rick, I'm like, how do, how do you handle and how do you say no to people? And how do you like decide what you do and what you don't do? And he's like, well, he's like, you've got to be really careful with this. He's like, he's like, right now, he's like, I'm helping a high school student with their senior poster because um, he wanted to do a senior poster on psychedelics. And he's like, if I have the time, I do it. <laughs> and so that just shot like just chills down my spine then and it's doing it now because that was the wake-up call of like don't think you're so important like you know what i mean it's like or that this is better than that and you know and i think just yeah he's rick again is one of a dear friend teacher and, and hero of mine and i'm like okay if, if, if this man has gotten to where he is and you know he has all these important things to do like like yeah 
who am that's, I? It's, I mean, it's absolutely so wonderful. It, it sends chills down my spine hearing you say that because I think especially in the industry that, that you, in the wellness industry where everyone's sort of promoting and especially in the mental health world where everyone's sort of promoting like connectivity and advocacy for one another and making this dialogue bigger and making people feel less alone. The people that are sort of at the forefront of promoting that message, there is so much ego there. So much ego is there. And so it's amazing to hear that perspectives like yours from somebody who has been like on a Netflix series, it's amazing to hear that that is real because a lot of the time as somebody like me who very much believes in all of those things and is kind of on like the lower, I haven't been on a Netflix series, I'm 25 years old, I'm figuring my shit out. It's very easy to kind of like look to all of these like quote unquote bigger people who have kind of been in the field for longer and are doing their thing. And of course I believe in like being very busy and saying no to things that you don't have time for. But it's very easy for me to look around and see all of these like tremendous egos and kind of feel like, how does one then make their way into this world? It feels very exclusive, um, which I feel like is so sort of counterintuitive to the message that's being kind of promoted, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, I think, part of the hard thing about like, I think, especially growing up your generation, I think is because this... Um, or even people a little older than you still like I, I didn't have my first I was telling my my I was talking to my best friend today and I was telling him I didn't have I'm 42 or 41 almost 42 in a couple of weeks but um, I didn't have my first laptop until college and um, I didn't have my first cell phone I think until my senior year of high school like I was t- talking to him about how amazing it was the first time I sent a text and I'm like oh yeah. look someone like mind is popping up into my phone like it was like, weird <laughs> And now there's all this stuff, you know, shot at us. Um, but the point is, like, actually, I mean, I was on, honestly thinking earlier today, and I'm like, I feel right now when I let myself just sit into this situation right now between you and I, I feel it's an honor for me to be talking to you. You know what I mean? I feel like it's an honor that, that I'm, I'm fortunate for you to be asking me to do this. Like, like really, you. And I'm not, those aren't just words. It's like, it's like the feeling, like in that. And the reason why that's important is because I want to say a little bit about what Rick said again. And it's not that I, at least Rick does say, say yes to most things he has time. I don't actually think that's necessarily the right thing. It might be the right thing for him. I'm not judging him. For me, it's become more of saying yes to things I have time for and I feel called to. Mm. Um, Because I think, especially right now with hyperconnectivity, there's a lot of stuff that comes at us. So and another thing I wanted to say is something about ego, right? Because I, I, it's not that they, and I, though I, you know, I, I introduced that word. Um, so, and I, I, I did sort of use it pejoratively in the way I, I introduced it to this conversation, but I actually don't think of it that way normally. It, it's more, it's the unhealthy part of ego that I was mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, because the ego is not something we want to get rid of, right? And that's where a lot of interpretation of Eastern philosophy in the West right now there's a lot of, oh, get rid of the ego, get rid of the ego. Like, no, no, that, that's not what we want. You know, that's what makes that, like, that's what makes us unique. That's what makes us be able to create and to be in this world that's different than the next person, right? Well, we, I think a lot of people that use the word ego don't know what ego is. Yeah, precisely. And so, and, and also this came from a conversation with Rick where he was talking to his mentor, um, this guy Stan Groff, who was sort of the godfather of psychedelic therapy, who they were having this conversation years, decades ago in Esalen about ego. And I guess Rick was probably struggling with it at that time. And then so what, uh, what Stan said to him is like, Rick, he's like, you don't want to get rid of the ego. 
you want to make it transparent to the transcendent. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and what that meant to me always is that actually helped me develop this perspective um, that I actually share with patients most first sessions and most of the time, which is like each of us is like a prism. You know what I mean? And, and like if you see the white light coming into the prism, like the prism is, appears and then it gives its, its emanation. And I feel like each human is like a completely unique, has a completely unique uh, potential to emanate. Um, a, 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 again, a, a unique emanation, which is different than any human that's on earth right now and that will ever be on earth and that ever has been on earth. And to me, that's bone chilling every time I think about it because it's like, that's to me the, the purpose of the human journey. And it's like, I think the healing journey, as we are referring it to, is, is, or the mental health journey in part is figuring out how to really emanate clearly. And, you know, again, there's, there's many, many tangents I could go down through that, but, but it, it, is, it feels that simple to me as I'm working with people. It's like, you know, culture, religion, social media, family, trauma, like clouds are emanation or what we want it to look like right we want our red to look darker or we want the mm -hmm. yellow to go away or we want the green to actually look more blue that's the thing that we're talking about that causes pain right that's mm -hmm. the expectation the desires but we learn all that stuff right like again and most of this happens before the age of 12 a lot of it even before five you know at home even sometimes even before we even uh, learn how to speak, you know, and to me, that's how simple the healing has become. It's, it's like, again, when I listen to words, like someone says difficult and I'm like, mm, okay, that's their in on that's a little piece of their emanation that wants help getting out. You know? mm. Did you come to have all of, I mean, not to assume that you're this kind of like totally clear person that has all of these like mass, like master revelations and that you're just kind of the sage, but your perspective is extremely powerful and extremely beautiful and very resonant, at least for me. And as somebody that considered themselves like kind of not, not so spiritual in their younger years and then had no interest in psychology or anything like that, I would never, I would never th like guess or assume any of, I would think that you've been like an extremely spiritual, introspective psychology, mental health driven person from the very beginning, like from when you walked out of the womb, just like hearing you talk. Do you, did you have a lot of these sort of revelations and formations of your perspective through your experience with like kind of alternative Eastern philosophy and psychedelic use? Or was this, um, how did you kind of come to to form these perspectives. And in that, I'd love to hear whether it has anything to do with it or not, how you sort of ended up going down the path of studying psychedelics. Okay. Not to completely associate your level of spiritual clarity with psychedelics, but I'd love to discuss both of those things, whether they're oh, wonderful. I, I, I was laughing because I, I was more <laughs> smiling out of joy. You, you asked, you're a good interviewer. Um, I ask kind so, of like triple questions. No, 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 but they're but they're they're thought out and they follow. You're, again, you're you're a good interviewer. Just thank just, you. Just, I receive that. <laughs> um, so what I'll say is that a couple things. Um, so most of this, what I feel is it, I, clarity is a, a. I'll take that adjective. That that's fair. I would say the amount of clarity that I would say I have now. I you know I've held a most of that for what's in the past year or so so it's 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 evolved tremendously 
since my first time I took a psychedelic, which was at the age of 34. Um, but I had no idea what was to come. So, so but it, it's been, I've been working my ass off since then, quite frankly, in, in therapy, but all sorts of different things. And not all of it was towards getting me to where I am now. Mm. Um, interestingly, one, one thing that Again, might be interesting for you to know is that I actually have had a hard time reading. I think mostly because of anxiety. Um, sometimes I've called it a dyslexia. So I, there's actually very little, um, especially in Eastern philosophies that I've read because I just have a hard time reading. So um, most of it's come through discussion with Jungian analysts and, and you know, my, my Jungian um, when I say Jung, I mean Carl, Carl Jung-oriented yeah, yeah. therapists or teachers um, and in conversation, or my non-Jungian you know, teachers. Um, and what's, or a lot of it has come through just my own life experience. And what's been nice about that is that actually I've come to many, many things like this prism idea, like, right, I think that came to me about a year ago. And I've started listening to more like Kabbalah podcasts recently because I've gotten into the Kabbalah and they have like the exact framework. It's like, it's so in a way, like I was, it, it's been really nice because instead of reading about these things ahead of time, I sort of had my life experience came to these, um, this, this clarity, I guess we'll call it. And then I'm like, oh, look, the Kabbalah says the same thing. Oh, look, Buddhism says the same thing. Hinduism says the same thing. And then to go back to one of the comments that you said about coming out of the womb, I actually would say, not jokingly, I did think I came out of the womb with this clarity. And so did you. And so did anyone that's listening. I believe and that we, about myself. And we've learned to block the clarity. Yeah. We've learned to, again, not listen and, and to, to think it's something that it's not. And so I think of the healing process is walking back to what we already know so when i hear from you or from clients they're like oh this really resonates i'm like because i'm not telling you anything you don't know at yeah. the soul level right you're it's just, I'm, I'm speaking to something that is much deeper than that mm -hmm. um and yeah and that's just the way and, and again that's why for me it's like oh yeah this is this is as magical and as a gift talking to you than anything i've done before because this is what's happening right now you know <laughs> yeah. no the thing um with the kind of going, there's a, a Ram Dass quote that I hold very near and it's, we're all just walking each other home. Totally. It, I say that to myself once a day, it resonates with me in a way. It's so simple, um, but it really touches me in such a deep place. And also, yeah, I just think it's kind of this, um, it's not like a new idea, but the fact that like babies are the most like clear beings on the planet, they just kind of exist in this pure bliss, ecstatic way. And that's our, that's our state of being. That's kind of like our most organic, pure form. And then we're taught all of these complex systems that make it so much more difficult to exist. Obviously, as you grow up and become a functioning member of society, there are all of these expectations and and sort of obligations that we have if we're going to function normally, quote unquote, that like a baby, you can't just exist like a baby. But that um, sort of natural state is just kind of like most simply what we're trying to get back to. And I think that that's an amazing thing to, to kind of keep at front of mind. Yeah. And to me, it's, 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 you know, that's part of what you know, and I love that you have this quote that you say to yourself daily, because I do think the human journey, and it's true, right? But I also think of the difference between knowing something in the mind 
and like or learning something in the mind would be another way to say it and then knowing it and experiencing it in the body right or mm -hmm. the embodiment of the philosophy and i think that's also it's an interesting point because like i think like right now with social media again there's plenty of beautiful quotes out there like the one you just mentioned right but the people that are embodying it it's just it's there's a different level of of just clarity and awareness on your journey right and i and it's just so to a to have something that's a reminder of you as you're going through these bumps is great but b it's just like it's 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 a you know again and i actually don't want to say that it's a higher level of being on a journey to have more embodiment of clarity i actually don't i don't see it that way i just see it as as different i was uh, again reading this i've just been geeking out on this book um, by nisar garada recently where he kind of talks about humanity or the human experience is kind of like a forest right the beauty of just walking into any you know natural forest and that forest has really mature tall, tall trees it has some trees that have already died and you know are now knocked over mm -hmm. in dried logs and there's some that are just infant trees and there's some that are trying to crowd other ones out to to you know get in their way in the sun and maybe the other one will die but they're all part of the forest you know what i mean so it's just a that's yeah, just a different part of the journey that's wonderful so when did you end up i keep asking you these questions about your your sort of process and then we, we go off on these really beautiful tangents <laughs> but when did you end up then going from you were at oxford and then when did you end up sort of pursuing the psychiatry path um back in the u.s yeah so you know, that year my dad died, I actually ended up, I think that's the year I finished my PhD. And then I finished then my two years of med school, right? And that's when I, I picked psychiatry. And then I went to, to Boston, to Harvard for their psychiatry program. And even when I entered there, though, um, I, I, wanted, I was an MD, PhD, which, uh, you know, most of the time, we, you know, that was another dream of mine that, that died, which I'll tell you about, which is, I'm going to be an academic MD, PhD psychiatry, and I'm going to be developing new um, antidepressants for depression. Like that was mm -hmm. my life goal at that point, right? Wow. But, and, but then I finished my first year of residency, which was really tough. We call it the internship. It was like, you know, 80, 90 hours a week and almost like thankless work and, and just doing a lot of paperwork, quite frankly, you know, and, re and it was just miserable. And then um, I had then finished that year and then I was starting psychiatry right and then but I had caught myself at a, an interesting time where looking back it was a re repetition of a pattern meaning I had put this hoop in front of myself saying oh I'm going to finish this year and life will be good and what happened was that then I started my year in psychiatry because first year internship is just general stuff you're doing everything surgery and pediatrics whatever and in my first lecture of my second year of residency was on depression and SSRIs. Mm -hmm. I remember the, the professor was like, okay, he's like, this is the best data we have for any psychiatric treatment. Um, it's, it was called the STAR-D trial, which is like tens of thousands of people in the US trying out SSRIs for depression. And he was like, literally like, this is the best data we have for mental health. And he was like, um, in this study, it's a double crossover, blah, 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 blah. 30% of people, with depression, no longer had it with an SSRI. And I remember, I, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I'm like, 
are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, that, the, the best we've got is 30%. And then I'm actually getting a little teary-eyed right now because it was that powerful. And then, then he follows it up with, and placebo in the same study was 19%. And like my heart dropped. I'm like, did I do all of this for 10% better than placebo? Like that's the best we've got. And at the same time, right, the point of being saying that I was done with this really hard year was that I was in my second lowest point of my life, you know, first being around the time of my dad's illness and death. And then getting to this point again, where I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have this awesome life. What a great career. And I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) So um, it was just, but it was that point where I actually started therapy for the first time for reals. And then I started seeing this pattern that had begun at least in high school of putting a hoop in front of myself at the time it was college. And Oh, if I achieved that, I'll be happy. And then I remember it's like, Oh no, college, I figured out that no, it's actually getting into the good med school. And then I got into UCLA and then within months I was miserable. And then it was the PhD. And then it was, so that was the first time I actually looked back and said, Oh shit, I've been doing this to myself. Mm -hmm. It's not that the world was doing this to me. It's not that everything's going bad. I'm creating this thing with my expectations. Um, which was a very tough pill to swallow because, you know, I'd always just looked for the answer outside, but it was, that was really the start of a really powerful part of my healing journey. Um, at that point, I still would have called myself atheist agnostic. I was 30, 32, 33 at that time. And, and it was fascinating. At that time, I had smoked pot about five times because the Jehovah's Witness part of that was still with me. Um, at that time, I did not have long hair, no piercings, no jewelry. I was still, again, I, even though I was like, a doctor, I was still very straight edge atheist. Um, and three of those times that I'd smoked pot, I ended up in the ER with panic attacks. Like, so I, I wow. the, and also being a child of the eighties, it was like the war on drugs that was all still in mm-hmm. my head. So, um, psychedelics, I never would have even thought of taking, um, or even thought of them as healing. And this is like in 2012, this was all happening. So way before psychedelics became popular. Um, and then it was fascinating then synchronicities, which I, I, now, you know, it wasn't until the recent years I even would use that word because, again, I wasn't spiritual. But um, at, th- at that same time, when I'm going through this, like, career crisis, and I was actually thinking about dropping out, um, I was going to go get my MBA. I actually started applying to, to, to companies, and I was going to get out of dropout. Uh, my childhood best friend, who had did the, he sort of did the opposite of me, where after high school, he barely graduated. He did a blue collar label job. He joined a band. Basically he had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then after the financial crisis in 08, 09, he actually lost his job. So he needed to go work and was finding a hard time. So he actually decided to go to college at the age of 32. So he's mm-hmm. going into his first year of college, the year I'm like in life crisis number yeah. two. And then he ends up dating his tutor at that time. And his tutor introduces him to a psychedelic called DMT. And so that's the first time I ever, like, in my adult life, even thought about a psychedelic. Um, Sounds like a fun tutor. <laughs> yeah. I'll date you I, and I'll give you psychedelics. Yeah, DMT of all of them. So it was funny because, like, my friend, he lived here in L.A. and I was in um, Boston and we would talk and he's like, oh, you've got to, like you know, read about psychedelics and check out DMT. He was send, sending me Terrence McKenna videos. I'm not sure if you've ever gone to, and I had no idea what any of this was. And I'm like, no, there's something wrong. I almost called his mom at one point. And I was like, this is like, we've got to intervene here because he's, he's doing drugs. 
And finally, there was like one day where he was like, no, he's like, they used to do research on this in the 60s and 70s, like psychiatrists did. At Harvard, too. No, but I was like, like, no, they don't. No, they didn't. And so I went to like our search engine called PubMed to like prove him wrong. And I saw all of these papers from the 60s. I was like, oh, shit, he wasn't lying. (laughs) And I saw there was some more recent stuff. And then that was the first time I was like, really like, wow, it looks like something happened. It looks like, then he said, then I did actually watch some of the Terrence McKenna stuff and I'm like, oh, maybe the government did, you know, they didn't make psychedelics illegal because they were bad for us. Maybe there is something else going on here. And that was the first time I was like, huh, I wonder if I should try this. And I was in such a low point in my life. I was like, fuck it. Like, (laughs) am I going to commit suicide anyway? So why not try this thing? And so the next vacation I had, I was 33 then, this is, yeah, 2013. Um, I flew to California on vacation and then we were all set up in his living room to try it. And then I like chickened out and I couldn't do it. So I flew back to Boston. (laughs) (laughs) I continued my depression. And then next visit to LA, I finally did it. (laughs) Because again, I, I I was terrified, but I was like, like life has gotten so bad that it doesn't matter. And so I tried it and I don't know. Um, People say this stuff, like there's these sayings in, in the psychedelic world where someone tries a psychedelic and for the first time and overnight goes from being atheist to becoming a devotee of Shiva. And that, that kind of is, that honestly is kind of like what happened to me. Like I, there, I just knew there was like three, four things that came to mind. I was like, there was something more real to that than the experience I'm in now, which again, as an atheist, there was, that was mind boggling. Number two, I was like, I've been there before. And number oh, three, wow. I was like, and it was warm and it was waiting for me. And again, I'm getting teary. Oh my God, know. that was beautiful. Like, that. So, so it wasn't, it's almost like it touches this thing that I feel like, meaning I touch now all the time, meaning like, look how miraculous that I'm talking to you. But it, you know, meaning it gave me the hint of the flavor of what this could be like. Mm. But then I had to keep working towards that. And I would say I'm still working towards trying to hold and maintain that most of my waking day and i'm getting I, I'm, I'm saying I've, i can certainly say i've gotten closer and closer and closer um not there quite yet where it's every moment but you know it's that to me is the the, the healing path in a nutshell you know and that's i was i've been recently thinking and sharing that like you know this is the type of approach i take with the clients that walk into my work into my office you know like it's it's i'm like i don't even know what percentage of what i do is psychiatry anymore like truly like i, I haven't prescribed an antidepressant in six or seven years at this point like i yeah. nobody's on any standing medications like sometimes i chant with people sometimes we'll, we'll do all sorts of stuff and so it's uh yeah that's kind of my how psychedelics really took off for me um that's yeah. so amazing to hear i i loved when you when you said it, it was warm and it was waiting for me, that really resonated with me. And it's just um, so many people, I think, do go their whole lives without tasting that, um, that feeling. And I think what a tremendous gift to know, not only to know in your soul that that sensation and that feeling is there and waiting for you, but to have like felt it, how profound and incredible. I think that that's... Um, it's so amazing to hear that that you've experienced that and that you have that as a reference point for your your kind of path going forward and also just again in terms of you saying like you don't know even how much psychiatry you really practice anymore and that i mean obviously that's it's a, it is some of what you do but that 
sort of the crux of your practice is on that spiritual level of like coming home. That is something that's so important because the whole reason that I'm kind of going, I never, I never thought that I was going to be in school for therapy ever. It was never my path. I was always going down an art route. I was going to be in fine art. I was, that's what I was doing. Um, This all came about because of the sort of mental health journey, if I hate that phrase, but the mental health journey that I went through and um, how profound of an experience I had in, because I've been very lucky in that I've had amazing, not only parents that believed in therapy and, and were willing to provide that for me from a very young age, um, so that access is is rare and amazing, but I had access to very good therapists my entire life. Um, and it was wonderful. It was very sort of like classic Western site, like therapy um, without any sort of spiritual component. But I always felt called to the spiritual side, but the two were very separate. There was this sort of um, very much internal spiritual identity that I had. And then my emotional sort of healing that was going on in a therapist's office was was very separate from that. And so what I went through, um, the people, most of the people listening have heard this a lot of times, but I know you don't really know much about my story. But um, when I went to college, I went to school in New York um, for a short time and I had developed a really intense eating disorder. And it got to a point where Um, I sort of was very into immediately trying all of these sort of alternative healing modalities. And I got very into sort of meditating and food blessing and and doing these kind of more holistic practices to sort of try to nurture myself back into health. But I was at the point where I needed kind of like triage, like immediate health. She needs to gain weight very fast or else like she could die. She's getting osteoporosis. All of these things are happening to her. So I was like, I went to a very traditional rehab. I did so much therapy, but I got so much therapy around it that like I could have written a book on how to heal from an eating disorder, quote unquote. And like in that, all of these like I knew so much about like trauma and loss and abandonment issues and daddy issues and all of these things that my therapists were like, this is what is going on. And technically, like with the amount of resources that I had and support that I had, I should have been healing, I guess. But I felt when I would go and sit in a therapist's office And it wasn't even like I was going in there and just sitting there and nodding my head and like not absorbing anything. I was having these like beautiful sessions and these revelations and I was crying and I was very engaged in the therapy, but I was almost kind of dissociating. So I would have these sessions and then I would go home and it's like, well, that was beautiful and amazing, but I will continue to starve myself because I didn't, I was totally dissociating. And it wasn't until I melded the two, my spiritual identity with the the tools that I was gaining from the therapy that I was then motivated to actually become healthy. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, that my, my wellness and my sort of, um, the six, the quote unquote, like success that I've had that like my therapist would say like, oh, you're, you're healed now that I've, I would have never gotten to this state of, 
um, health, not to say that I'm like fully healed and healthy. I don't think that, I think you actually said this in your, in your, the goop episode, you've said I, in my, all my years, I don't think I've actually met like a fully healthy person. Like, what does that even mean? But I, I would have never gotten to where I am now um, had I just kind of gone the traditional therapy route. And that's coming from someone who had access to like the best therapists. And from when I was very little, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for the incorporation of my spiritual identity and spiritual practices. Um, and I guess practices and, and perspectives that would be considered more of like the Eastern philosophy. Um, I had it not been for, for that and for the combination of the two perspectives, I would not be here guaranteed. Yeah. Beautiful story. Um, and I really appreciate you, this piece about, um, embodiment particularly because it actually was, I was thinking to say something and then you sort of got to it. Um, so I can't remember if I or you introduced the word spirituality into the conversation today. Um, it may have been me, um, but I've, that, that's become almost like a, <laughs> I was talking, I was talking to my friend about how uh, the more clarity we gain, I think for ourselves in, in our journey, the triggers become more subtle and subtle. And to me, triggers are simply ways of sort of signs of what to further, you know, work on what's getting in the way of, of, of more clarity. And in the last like six months in particular, the word spirituality has become actually a trigger to me. <laughs> wow. I'll have to admit there's still a little bit of that there now. And I think it's because of what's happened with wellness and spirituality on social media, because I, to me, it's just become another buzzword. And, mm -hmm. you know, oh, what are your spiritual beliefs and this and that? And like, cause to me, I actually, I, and, and this is to your point, is, is this is how I've been explaining it to people. I'm like, I, I actually care less about what someone's spiritual beliefs are. I care about more about how they're living their day-to-day -day life and how are they engaging each people and how are they engaging their work and how are they engaging and embodying the world, essentially. Well, that is the real spirituality. To me, like, there's now become this, like, again, the, oh, like, I don't know, sound and singing bowls and every weekend and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. To me, if that's, there's become something, again, very inauthentic within spirituality, you know, and, and perhaps there was a time where it was really more connected, but that's all to say is that like, I don't know, even as I think about it now, maybe I actually do describe myself as an atheist now, you know, but, but it's like, because I, to me, it's less about, you know, believing in God, you know, it, it, it's, it's more about this. I mean, we are just a part of this thing, you know, and, yeah. and, or an expression of source or God. And, and so to me, it's actually, yeah, you know, some of the most amazing healers I know, or just the most, most amazing people I know that wouldn't even call themselves a healer or have, have provided healing to me, potentially are atheists, you know what I mean? Or, or some, you know, my, out of my, you know, seven, eight most trusted healers for me, there's only two that have a psychology or psychiatry license. The rest mm -hmm. are just like baller human beings who yeah. do amazing, amazing work. So, um, you know, when I hear things like sometimes, um, you know, like, oh, I've always had access to therapists and psychiatrists, like to my, I, I did too, you know, that's, that was one of the things that was happening when I was at Harvard, my first year struggling as I was like, I'm at the quote, best place in the world for this. I have access to the best 
psychiatrist at that time. And I'm like, and I'm still struggling. Yeah. Meaning for at some, some parts of me are like, you know, you know, is, is, could I have been better off that I actually didn't have a psychiatrist when I was 14? You know, like, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I feel like the, the teachers we have or the healers we have can only take us as far as they've gone. Right. And Absolutely. So, so, yeah, I think sometimes certain psychologists or psychiatrists can, can actually, you know, inflict more of the suppression on people, um, than, you know, than and, and more pain sometimes than, uh, than what they're meant to. Yeah, no, I completely, I agree with a lot of what you just said. I think, um, I really resonate with you, um, saying that sort of the word spirituality has become a bit triggering. I mean, I'm a 25 year old woman with a mental health podcast existing in the time of like goop and Instagram and all that shit. It's really, it's a lot. And I'm someone that becomes so overwhelmed by all of it. I stopped doing the podcast and I didn't, I never wanted to have a podcast ever. Like the logging on and being like, hey guys, this is my perspective on how you can be like less lonely and well today. That's the most sort of cringy thing um, to me. And I started it because I felt very called to do it on a, on a deep level. I didn't really know where that was coming from, but that was the reason why I thought it was important to do it. Um, but I stopped doing it for months because it honestly became when I would look around at like the community of people that were in the wellness world on Instagram and what I was having to do with posting and the internet and all of it, it was so triggering to me. Um, and it's taking a, it's taken a lot to come back and, and do it, especially, um, yeah, as somebody that's sort of like looking around and discovering who they are as a, um, like a, an aware and interested in living, um, I guess like the most evolved life possible for as young of an age. Like I, I'm a curious person. I want to learn and I want to be in the least triggering way possible, like spiritual and enlightened. I like want all of these things. Um, but it's hard to do that in an age when like on Instagram, you go on there and like, everyone's posting like their sound baths, their meditation practices. This is what you, the juice cleanse you need to do. This is the like Ayurvedic diet you need to follow. And I have been in those places where like, I'll consider, like, I'll think about like, why can't I meditate consistently for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night? What does that say about my spirituality? Like, what does that mean that I can't do that? And I've learned very much to just accept the fact that like, I know from the minute I was born and even before that, I'm such a, a cosmic being and I came out this aware and, and spiritual and, and glowing and fantastic. Like, I really do believe that. And I've kind of just come to accept that like, my spirituality, when I say that like I am a spiritual person, it is in the way that I interact with people and it's in the way that I like put oil on my skin and like make my bed and look at my surroundings and like grocery shop. It's like those tiny things and those just like micro actions of being, that's where the spirituality is. It has nothing to do with what Rumi quote you read today. Like that's really not... It. So I really do. Uh, I do agree with that a lot. That's, that's beautiful. And, you know, I think that's the, you know, when you say about, you know, the cringing at <laughs> having a podcast or whatever, it's just like, you know, I think it's, it's the, it's the constant checking in with, am I called to do it? Right. And you said initially you were called to do it. And it's not like there's a, 
um, it's just it's this reassessment, right? It's like that, and 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 so you know, it may be that this is the second round, and you may do this the rest of your life, or it may be that you do it for another six months and decide you not to. Right. There's, there's nothing wrong yeah. with any of that. It's just like, it's. I think that the most important part is, is, is you know, does the path have a heart? Which is um, I'm referring to. I don't know if you've read any Carlos Castaneda. Um, I have a sense that you might really enjoy. Um, there's one book in particular called Journey to Ichlan, which is really beautiful. Um, I'm going to ask you to send that to me after I have a list of things that I'm going to ask you about in an email okay. or something after this. But yeah, um, I definitely, like, are, um, you know, basically uh, it's a, I can't remember the exact quote right now, but Don Juan, who is this, this teacher of Carlos Castaneda, which I'll say for anyone, just in case they want to read it, is that if you go, it'll be described as fiction. But the reality okay. is like that, that didn't come to be until later. And if the Simon and Schuster who published like eight or nine of Carlos's books, still listed as nonfiction. Um, and Carlos, very few people read him these days, but you know, he was on the cover of Time Magazine. There was like, he was a New York Times bestseller, but like it ended up towards the end of his life. And if you Google him, you'll see some people who accuse him of having made this stuff up that he did. But I actually don't think it was made up because I think that Don Juan was very much a real person. Um, I actually know a couple of people whose whose colleagues met Don Juan back in the day. I know we're, we keep going on tangents. I hope it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's great. But, it's a um, real conversation we're having. This is not like, an interview. Uh, <laughs> but basically, like the reason why I've come to believe that really Don Juan was real because there is so much that, um, and then the the book by. Uh, Nisar Gadara, uh, which are which they're different kind of books, but like, like to me, I, I realized there's like Don Juan has taken me to the edge of where I have gotten to in my journey, and I still know there's more for me to learn from how Carlos wrote about him and what he wrote, meaning there's no way someone could have made that up. You know, to me, like <laughs> like it, there's no way it was sufficient because like that's as far as any piece of reading has ever taken me. Um, but then I can also see why for a lot of people that's become too fantastical to believe is real, right? For people who are still locked into their, again, how, how not magical life is <laughs> that, that people perceive it that way. Anyway, but Don Juan, there's a part of it where he, uh, in a couple of his books, where he goes into this concept of, of um, does the path have a heart, right? And he talks about this one in particular where he's like, all paths go through the bush, into the bush, around the bush, um, but none of the paths actually go anywhere. Uh, none of them lead anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's really just about does the path have a heart or not? And, and that can be sometimes for some people, especially what, what stage they're at, where planning, as you were saying earlier, is so important of what am I going to become and what's, but it actually takes a bit of power away from that. But then it actually then goes back to that moment. What does this moment, does this current path have a heart or not? Huh. And it really does. But I really also like the, really that all the paths go nowhere. I really do believe um, in, in the feeling that comes up for me around that. And um, last thing I wanted to share in terms of this part of the conversation, like, you know, you had mentioned this thing about, you know, the Rumi quotes, which is like, uh, and it's not that that stuff out there isn't important or isn't needed. It really depends on what part of the journey we're on, right? Um, and then there's this old Chinese proverb that comes to mind that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's very short. Um, but the, the saying goes, um, tell me and I will forget, show me and I may remember, involve me and I will understand. Mm. And 
so it's not that the tell me isn't important, right? Like I've gained, you've gained a lot from speaking to other people reading, right? But it's, it's the, the, the involvement, the embodiment that you were calling it earlier, right? That's the step to take it through in life, right? And so if we're only getting stuck in one of the layers, that, that's when it can be, I don't even want to call it problematic there, you know, unless it's a different stage of, of, of one's development, right? And so, um, you know, but that's one of the interesting things that I would say about psychedelics that is different, right? Because I think any form of quote or book is a tell me and I will forget for the most part. Yeah. Psychedelics do have this very special thing about them that in the right set and setting with the right person at the right dose, like my first DMT experience, it actually goes from show me, sorry, it goes from tell me to show me. It isn't actually an experience, right? Um, which can last, you know, with DMT five minutes or with ayahuasca for four or five hours, but it is an experience, right? You do then come back down. Um, you know, Ram Das, interestingly, even though how much he's connected, he's been associated with the psychedelic field, in the end, he kind of wasn't that big of a fan. And I've become less and less of a fan of them the way they're being sold right now, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's the, it's the embodiment that comes in the weeks and months after a psychedelic experience, which is to me the most important part, right? What does someone carry into their sober day-to-day -day life, as you were saying, making your bed, um, going grocery shopping that that to me is the the yeah, embodiment of even the show me aspect so i think mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because there's this little discrepancy between it's clearly more than reading a book or read or a quote but but there's this experiential aspect but there's still the embodiment piece that's required with psychedelics so i'd love to talk a bit about the work that you currently do with with psychedelics and just what it looks like for for people that don't know and um, and also just that kind of going into your views on, on medication. Cause I definitely have my own journey with medication and, um, it's been one that like, I'm very proud of and really believe in, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you about, about that. And then as well, your work with, with psychedelics and how that looks. Sure. I mean, You know, pain, the way I define pain, and I think there's, there's really three or four main emotions that I would use for what people refer to as pain or suffering, which is sadness, fear, shame. Let's, let's just leave it at three to not make it more complex. But those are the things, right? Sadness, which people call in the clinical world depression, or, anxiety, or fear, what people call anxiety. <laughs> Guilt and shame also kind of go hand in hand with, often with depression. Um, the Western approach has been that these are bad things that we need to get rid of, right? I am sad. I shouldn't feel sad. Uh, what do I take? An antidepressant. I feel scared. I feel anxious. I shouldn't feel this. What should I take? Uh, a benzo, an anti-anxiety med. I'll even go so far to say, again, the last, the third category of psychiatric meds, antipsychotics, right? Oh, this, this person isn't fitting what, what we say is functional, should be living like this or that. Let's give him an antipsychotic, right? Mm -hmm. To me, and, and that last one could probably be an hour conversation, meaning antipsychotic and schizophrenia. So maybe not for today. But the, the point is we've had this thing that we are calling normal and we want, there's this desire to tamp down anything that's not. Where something I learned along my, my journey, um, and this is another example of something I 
quote again learned in my own head and then i mm -hmm. was like oh, oh again the kabbalah and buddhism they talk about this which is like actually how would i have known that i'm on the wrong path if it were not for the pain like if i didn't want to actually become an eye surgeon and i wasn't depressed and anxious meaning sad or scared what motivation would there have been to do anything else right, right. meaning i started listening <clears throat> to the pain and being like actually this is like our little like gps like if we make a wrong turn and it's like make a u-turn it's like i actually want this signal of pain yeah like, what what makes it difficult started to go back to that word you used earlier is when we ignore the gps and we keep going in that direction saying why am i not feeling great while mm -hmm. i'm on the wrong path yes and so the reason i bring this up is because the western approach has been let's suppress these with medications the western psychiatry approach i would actually say though it's not just western psychiatry society has done this right alcohol perfect example of something that suppresses anxiety for the most part a little mm -hmm. bit sadness and depression but it's we're living these lives that are not doing the things that we want to do we're work, spending most of our waking life doing a job that we don't like and what do most people do they go home at the end of the day go on the weekend drink they don't have to feel it they go to sleep they get back up the next day and they keep doing it again right it's it's or social media or i mean the list goes on and on of ways that we suppress right with drug people who are who use drugs as a coping strategy benzos work for a period of time heroin works to help if you are anxious for a period of time right so there's this culture of suppression it's not just western medicine so the way i view medications is it's i guess one of the tricky things about western medicine has been like that this is what's been billed to us as the solution right but it hasn't been actually working and so just the same way i'm saying that 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 medications and other things suppress these things that we actually want to feel so that mm -hmm. we can make different decisions psychedelics do the opposite right they evoke the emotions they evoke the memories they so so that we actually are faced with them and have the opportunity to potentially shift them um so so roundabout ways to say that okay so that's what not just medications but many things do is they suppress mm -hmm. And I'm not a doctor who's completely against using Western medication. Sometimes if someone is in their process, but they can't shake up their life, you know, as easily as at times I have, you know, since starting private practice, since I graduated, I've had a lot of flexibility, like, right, I'm, I'm my own boss. No one tells me what to do. I've moved. I've done all sorts of things because I can just switch on a dime if I want to. A lot of people don't have that freedom, right? So meaning like if someone is going through an anxious period of a breakup or they are switching a job but need to apply to something else because they need money to like pay their rent and the anxiety goes up during that period am i willing to write them a western pharmaceutical to help them sure like, like mm -hmm. it's just like that or something to help them sleep if they can't sure but it's long-term use of some of these things that is the problem right? mm -hmm. um, so yeah that's sort of my take on them and when we're kids if if our environment is completely controlled by our parents and they you know they're part of really inflicting the pain and we can't make a different choice because we're 12 years old yeah sadly this is actually the first time i ever said this coming out of my mouth but it's like maybe medications are better for kids at that age if they really if there's nothing else that can be done mm -hmm. you know like i don't know but you know it's just more of a ideally we can help people whether it's kids or adults to, to actually move through what's causing them the pain instead of just trying to suppress it. 
Yeah. And sometimes the, the Western medication is necessary to get like for the little nudge to get the person to the place where they can then receive the clarity that then comes after that. Like with mine, I really was, um, against any kind of medication. I was never medicated as a, as a child. And, um, I had all these friends, of course, like growing up in LA and every, every one of my friends was like 11 years old on Adderall, like all of them. And, um, yeah, I was never medicated. My mom, um, her sort of like drug of choice was, she was a solids person. It was always like a, a medication for her and never like an alcohol thing. Um, and so I was always very against it. And I got to this point sort of, I think it was around like 2019 or something. Or no, it was earlier. It was like 2018 or so I had had my eating disorder for a few years. I had done so much work around understanding the root of it and the causes of it and, and the practices that I needed to participate in, in order to heal and to get better. And I had done so much work and I was, but I was so exhausted by, there was something that when it came time to eat more and have freedom around eating in a healthy way, I could not do it. I could not let myself, I had such high anxiety around the reality of my body changing because to gain weight you gain weight like it's a real process it doesn't just magically happen there's a lot of weird stuff that happens you bloat in some crazy ways it's like the refeeding edema like there are lots of crazy things that happen and i was not ready to face any of it and i was so anxious i was crying all the time and so finally after like i think my mom suggested it first in like 2016 and so i'd been thinking about it for two years and then finally i went on five milligrams of Paxil. Um, and sort of immediately within like two weeks, anything that was extremely triggering to me around sensations in my body and body dysmorphia and food, it all became, and I had also developed this really crazy, um, like a skin OCD. If I had like one pimple, I thought it was like the end of me. Um, all of it just kind of became okay. Not much less triggering. It was like, oh, pimple, I can put on makeup. Like I'm feeling bloated, it's fine. It'll go away eventually. It became so okay. And I totally attribute that little final nudge that it took me after I had done all of this work um, in therapy. And I need that five milligrams of Paxil, I believe was what let me, it suppressed the anxiety so I could make the final move to get healthy. Then what happened was after several months, I think it was, four months or so of being on it, the five milligrams were not working anymore. So I went up to 10, which is the smallest dose of one full pill. And I took that for another year after that. So I was on it for a year and a half. And then I got to the point after that year that it's kind of, I could feel that it wasn't working anymore. I could feel these triggering things, this anxiety, these like moments of deep, deep, profound sadness. And um, I talked to my psychiatrist about it and she's like, oh yeah, it's normal. We'll just up your dose again. And I said to her, I started taking this because I wanted to reach a place of physical health that was seemingly impossible for me to get to without it. But now I'm here. I've arrived here. I've never experienced existence in this body as like a physically healthy young woman. I've essentially never experienced that, not on this small dose of medication. I think before we just continue down this path of upping my dose, I'd like to try continuing without it and just see how I do. Um, and so I stopped taking it. Um, 
and it is very hard. Things are very, it's, I understand why people decide that life is just not doable without them because it is much easier to go through the sensations that we feel as humans on a day-to-day basis while everything is being suppressed. It's much more comfortable. Um, but I, I very much agree with, with using medication as a temporary nudge toward whatever is otherwise seemingly impossible or very, very, again, difficult. I mean, it it has to be in the sweet spot is what comes up for me. You know, when I think about what you just said, um, which is like by sweet spot, I mean, if symptoms are too intense, we can't actually, it's hard sometimes to, A, just get around the world day to day, the way the world is structured right now. And B, especially with fear or trauma related things is that like, you know, if there's a big fire, it's harder to put out than if there's a smaller fire. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, if by saying we having some of these symptoms is important in order to understand the pain, the root of the pain, et cetera, is that we just have to have that at a good balance, you know, meaning um, sounds like for you or some, some people that I work with, it's like we do keep them on meds for a bit because it's like, it's enough to get them to work, to be able to come and see me every week and to, to be able to actually sit with difficult emotions or memories and then have them come out in a safe way is the key word where they can cry with me, et cetera, where it's not too overwhelming. Um, you know, or th- sometimes there's oversuppression. Sometimes I'll work with someone and they understand a lot and we've dug a lot in the mind and the history and okay, so this behavior now connects with stuff that happened between my mom and dad, but there's no tears coming. It's because they're so suppressed that though that the mechanism that the body needs to eject this old energy, this old trauma, can't come to the surface because it's kept being suppressed, right? Mm-hmm. So then it's important to like actually then go down on the dose. So it's all about yeah. finding the sweet spot of enough um, gentleness, yet enough of the pain to where we can work with it. No, yeah, absolutely. I think that again, going back to what you said about the pain being necessary, just to like historically when we were out like cavemen and like hunting and in the boat like we need our fear response is to keep us alive it's a survival mechanism we need to feel fear in order to like i don't know when there's like a somebody walking behind us in a creepy way the fear we feel is very important that potentially could be very dangerous if we're like in the wild and there's a giant tiger approaching Mm-hmm. That fear we feel is very much necessary to keep us alive. So the fact that we kind of, and a lot of, there's that thing about um, with like how much advertising we see in media and all the like flashing lights and advertisements all the time. It's the same, it's like affecting our cortisol levels in the same way that like a pack of saber-toothed tigers running behind us would feel, I, I forget where I heard that, but apparently like we feel that level of stress totally. on a very daily basis. Totally. We, we do, we really do. I mean, sorry, I'm gonna have to stop in a minute. I have a, I have a patient at- uh, Oh my God, yeah, of course. And I guess, um, but, um do you have another like- that. I just want to say that a little bit that, that psychedelics, again, are being almost sold right now. I know we didn't actually even talk about psychedelics I know. much, which is fine though, actually, because- they're simply another tool, right? That they're not the magic bullet. They're not the panacea, right? Because again, some people, most people come in to see me now because of some psychedelic podcast I did or something. And they're yeah. the vast majority never come out even doing one and, and are feeling much, much better after doing some work together. Because it's like, if, you know, we're talking about this balance of feeling enough 
um, psychedelics can sometimes just be too much for people and they can feel worse and they can feel, um, yeah, more out of balance or more scared on a day-to-day -day basis. So I would see them more going forward as a, do I need this at this part of my journey um, instead of it's going to be a part of my journey the rest of my life, right? So, yeah. Um, just in well, case any whole... people that are listening are super, super into psychedelics. Of course. We might have to do a, a part two on the psychedelics. If you have a couple more minutes, I would just love to ask kind of a closing question. You wrote something um, that was very beautiful on loneliness. And that's something that I think about a lot. I think it's sort of the main human ailment right now is this sort of like, I think there's like a mass pandemic of loneliness, honestly, separate from COVID, separate from any like, I think it, loneliness is a very big problem. And with this sort of like digital world that we're coming to exist in, it's becoming easier and easier to be, to be very alone. And I would just like to ask you, um, just like what, uh, I hate to say what advice you would give, but just what you would tell anyone listening um, about loneliness or who might be feeling very lonely. Because it is a time that I think a lot of people right now are feeling very lonely, me included sometimes in this moment. Yeah, so um, that's a whole, yeah, we could do a part two. If you <laughs> wanted to do a part two, I'm, I'm happy to, honestly. I would love to do it. I will be reaching no, out about too long that. Of a, too long of a question to answer very succinctly. I, I think I would think of loneliness as one of the painful emotions, especially sadness mm -hmm. or fear, both, plus thought, right? Loneliness requires thought because it requires awareness of something else, someone else. Ultimately, I think the root of loneliness comes from, and this is now getting back into the spiritual stuff we said, <laughs> the word we both didn't like is that, <laughs> and being a human is about being disconnected from whatever it is, the light source, et cetera, I would say. And I think the journey for a human to me is to actually find out that we were never disconnected to begin with. That, that's like sort of an overarching belief that I have, right? It's, mm. it's our finding our way home, right? Walking each other home is, is the way you, you had sort of phrased it earlier. So to me, it's about then if someone is feeling that, again, it's, it's an indicator of so what am I doing in my life to, that's leading to me to feel disconnected, right? And it, sometimes I, I don't love saying it that way, but I think it's the most honest way to say that because it can be painful to say, what am I doing to mm -hmm. create this state of loneliness? Which is not to say that trauma, et cetera, that's happened to us is okay. It's just saying that usually the perpetuation of loneliness is something that is coming from within us. Mm -hmm. Am I too scared to go out into the world? Am I too scared to put myself out there? Am I... So it's a result of trauma, but, but the, usually the, the outside of continuation you know, of, of circumstances that, that are out of our control, usually we have built a life around us, have kept relationships with people, partners, family, who continue to perpetuate this. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's really about self-inquiry into how, how, what are the things I'm doing to, to maintain myself in this state? So but I do have to go now. Um, Thank you. So uh, this was um, an absolute honor to talk to you and, and I hope that we, we will keep in touch. I know that. And, and I look forward to having you back on here. <laughs>